We put our confidence in your promises of the presence of the Spirit until we meet you and are in your presence forever. We long, Father, for that day, and we praise you for the salvation that is in Christ, of which we have sung. We praise you for the privilege to come before the open word and to consider your message to this church today, a message that we may not design, may not choose, may not have thought about, but as you have taken us through this great book of Romans to this point, we come now to the text before us, and we long to see in this text a call to each of us to exemplify Christ to one another, to learn to love one another, to learn to use our freedoms in a way that advances your cause, does not harm it. In a world at war, where tension seems to mark virtually every public conversation. We praise you for the peace that we have in Christ, for the love for one another that you have purchased, and for the love that you have displayed to us in Christ crucified and risen. So we come before this text and we ask that you would teach us and mature us in the faith and draw to Christ those who know him not as Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. There seems to be very little agreement these days between political liberals and political conservatives. Yet even the most extreme left-wing liberal and extreme right-wing conservative find common ground on one idea. And that idea is freedom. If there's one unifying virtue in American public discourse, it is the conviction that people should be free. The problem is, individual freedoms routinely conflict with community prosperity. And so, let the debates begin. One person's freedom to become immensely rich seems to impinge on the prosperity of the many disadvantaged. The freedom of a woman to end the life of her unborn child tears at the moral fabric of an entire nation. One person's freedom to own a gun conflicts with the well-being of victims of a mass shooting. Activists insist on the personal freedom now to smoke marijuana. This will never go away. We will hear this now the rest of our lives until we just forget about it. But the other side says granting that personal freedom will wreak havoc on the prosperity of our country. And so conservatives and liberals bounce back and forth, supporting individual freedoms here and communal protections there. This polarization is unfixable. It is utterly unfixable. And the reason is that the world has little capacity to see that personal freedoms can be set aside in love for others. I don't mean to make a political statement along that line and to choose between these varying options necessarily, but to say that very concept that my freedom, what I legitimately have, can be set aside in love for others. It's something that we don't see in this world. The parallel, of course, is not perfect. 
But the local church is comprised of members with differing beliefs as well. Differing beliefs, more significantly, about how to live out our freedom in Christ. How to live the Christian life. We do not always agree on how that should look. As a church, we certainly walk in close agreement on fundamental Bible doctrines. The truth that God has revealed. But in our personal lives, we do not always agree on how best to live the Christian life for God's glory. Our consciences, said another way, our consciences do not always tell us the same things. But Christian, we have met Jesus. We have met Jesus Christ. And so, we are equipped then with the new life capacity to order our freedoms, not by selfish ambition and angry insistence on our rights, but to order those freedoms out of love for one another. Love fits us with the capacity to know when to set our freedoms aside for the good of others. Last week we considered Romans chapter 14 verses 1 through 12 where the Apostle Paul addresses two groups of people in the Roman church. They are believers, members of the church in good standing. So we're not talking about heretical belief here by any means. But in the church there at Rome, there were individuals whose consciences told them different things about how to live the Christian life, how to be faithful to God. Both sides are seeking faithfulness to the Lord. But they don't see it the same way. As the Apostle addresses these individuals, we've come now to verse 13, but let's review for the sake of those who were not with us last week, buried in the snow or whatever. Uh, But we're grateful that we're back here together today in full force, and let's consider it again and just review for each of us a crucial interpretive decision here in Romans 14 and 15 is who are those weak in the faith? And then, of course, accordingly, those who are strong in the faith. But we're introduced, first of all, in chapter 14 to those who are weak in the faith. Who are they? They are not legalists. That is, they are not those who are following the Mosaic law in order to achieve salvation, in order to gain status with God. They were mostly Jewish Christians from all that we can determine. They were faithful church members, but they had not grasped the full implications of Christ's death and resurrection. They believed that they were still obligated to observe certain aspects of the Mosaic Law. And a particular concern was the reality that the meat available to them in pagan Rome violated the guidelines of the Mosaic Law. God speaks His will to Israel and He says this about meat. And we cannot in good conscience go to the market and eat that meat. We believe that we will be disobeying God. So, they were vegetarians. And this put them at odds with the largely Gentile Christians in the assembly who knew that in Christ they were freed from the Mosaic stipulations regarding meat. These strong in the faith Christians ate meat freely. And what blew the other side away is that they ate with clean conscience. 
They had no problem eating this meat. In fact, they bowed over that dinner of meat and thanked God. So the issue that divided the members of the church was the enduring validity of the ritual observances of the Old Covenant for the followers of Christ. Vegetables, meat. This wasn't a dietary thing. It wasn't a weight loss plan. It wasn't where you're going to go to market. It was do we continue to respond to God by obedience to these rituals of the Old Covenant. Now I encouraged us then, secondly last week, as having identified the weak in the faith, not to impose reductionistic interpretations on the text. This is quite common. Some Christians read a passage such as this, and those in 1 Corinthians 8-10, through 10, and they conclude that every pot-smoking, beer-guzzling, casino-attending, club-hopping, sensual movie-watching, vulgar music-listening Christian is strong in the faith. And every Christian who avoids some of these things in a reasoned attempt to make no provision for the flesh, 13-14, is categorically weak in the faith. Now, I, I exaggerate slightly But reading some of these authors, I'm only exaggerating slightly. We must not apply this passage so carelessly and simplistically. It is not a simple equation. Whoever's conscience doesn't bother them is strong in the faith, and whoever has a conscience about certain things and what's wise and mature is always weak in the faith. The situation in the Roman church was considerably different from our own as any thoughtful commentary on the book of Romans will note. All that being said, we looked last week at Paul's counsel to the strong in the faith. What was it? As you look at that other Christian in your church, welcome him. Welcome her. Receive these individuals. Draw them into your fellowship. Embrace them even though all they will eat is vegetables, and even though you know in the faith you are right, Christ's death and resurrection has brought the law to fulfillment. You're not under those obligations. You're right, but receive those brothers and sisters. To the weak, he said, I want you to do this. You've got to stop passing judgment. Don't look at that brother or sister who with clear conscience is able to eat meat and judge them. Don't look down upon them. You can trust God with your brothers and sisters who disagree with you. When their conscience permits them to eat meat, it's all right. Embrace them because Christ died for them too. The emphasis now shifts at verse 13 a little bit more toward an address to the strong. The emphasis of verses 1 through 12 is mostly on the weak. Don't judge those who have a conscience that is clear about things that bother you. But here we come in verses 13 to 23, an emphasis a little bit more upon the strong. And I put the the thesis this way of these verses. Your conscience as a mature gospel believer may permit you to eat non-kosher meat sold at market. 
But love for your weaker brothers and sisters in Christ may require that you suspend your freedom in order to protect them from stumbling. This, I think, summarizes the point that Paul is making. And I use some of these words very pointedly, such as you suspend your freedom. Not cancel it, not put it away forever, not kill it, but suspend it in certain situations to protect those weak in the faith from stumbling morally. Now let's work this out, and it is a bit of a challenge because it's not a situation that we face directly. But there are principles that are here that are highly applicable as we relate to one another. So we see, we could summarize verses 13 through 18, I think, this way. Determine never to cause others to stumble, but lovingly serve their sanctification. Work with the making holy process that Christ has initiated by saving them. Verse 13 of chapter 14. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. That's an address, actually, to uh, the weak in the faith. And it summarizes Paul's instructions in verses 1 through 12. However, the word applies both to both parties, as Paul will now transition more to the strong. So, do not continue to judge any longer, now talking to all of them, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. And particularly here, an emphasis upon the strong. Here's the point. Don't put a stumbling block in the way. Imagine that you are standing across the street in downtown Minneapolis and you're just observing this woman on the other side of the street, across the street, on the sidewalk, walking, making her way along, and she's clearly nearly blind. She, in fact, has a white cane and she's kind of poking her way down the street and making good progress. She can see a little bit, but she's virtually blind. And you're just watching her walk along. And then ahead is this worker, construction worker, who's repairing the sidewalk ahead. And he sees the woman coming. He looks back and sees her and notes her. You see that he's made connection there with his eyes. He takes his big toolbox and he plops it down on the sidewalk right in her path. And you kind of watch this disaster unfold slowly, but she works her way toward that area. The cane goes right over the toolbox, does not detect it. Her feet catch that thing, and she falls flat on her face. Now that worker had the freedom to put his box there. But it wasn't wise. It wasn't loving by any definition of the word. He selfishly did what he had freedom to do that caused her to fall on her face. Now, Christian, we can do that with one another. We can so exercise our sense of freedom in Christ that we put that toolbox right down in front of a Christian brother or sister and cause them to stumble and fall morally. Don't put your box down like that. Is what he's saying. You can be a stumbling block or a hindrance here, verse 13. These two words may be virtually synonymous. If there's any distinction, the first is more by chance, the second is more intentional. So whether by carelessness or by spite, 
We must not use our freedom to cause a brother or sister to stumble on the path of faith. By carelessness, this man, this worker, not seeing this woman coming, just being careless, being thoughtless, being unloving, or as some individuals might push our buttons and really irritate us and bother us by the positions that they take, we might actually do something to kind of let them know that we don't approve. Don't do that. Do not put a hindrance in the way of a Christian brother or sister. Paul now adds a parenthetical idea in verse 14, just to let us know where he's at, providing perspective. Verse 14, he says, I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. If you're tracking with the context, this verse makes good sense. United to Christ by faith, Paul has come to understand that the laws regarding clean and unclean meat and drink under the Old Covenant are no longer binding on believers under the New Covenant. I know, I'm persuaded in my relationship with Jesus as Lord and Savior that nothing is unclean in itself. Remember Jesus making that statement. He rendered all things clean when He said it's not what goes into you. It's what comes out of you. What comes out of the heart. That's the issue. Paul gets that. And you, Christians who are strong in the faith, you get this. You know what Christ has done. But do you get this? It's unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. We don't naturally like to think that way. But we've got to, in love, think from the other person's perspective. If they perceive it to be defiling, and eating that meat will cause me to dishonor God, I need to respect that. I need to see that. Now again, this isn't legalism, trying to earn God's favor, earn our way into heaven by some law. Nothing. He's got a lot to say against that. Take the book of Galatians. But here we have a misapplication of Scripture to some level, and yet he says to them, it is unclean, that meat. So anything that is clean under the new covenant is essentially unclean if a person believes it's unclean. And so I think here what we're seeing is the apostle speaking like a realist. A slab of meat may be nothing but a slab of meat. But a Christian may read the Mosaic law and conclude, I can't eat that. Is he right? No. She's failed to discern the truth of the gospel in this regard. And yet, for this one, in his or her mind, that meat is effectively off-limits. It's, as it were, unclean. And you need to respect that, he says. So back to the point. Picking up where he left off in verse 13, verse 15, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. So let's picture... Two brothers in the church at Rome. And the one says, Brother, let's go down to the market and purchase some lunch and just sit down on the grass there. You remember grass, Minnesotans? <laughs> We're gonna, they're going to sit on the grass. This is Rome, so I think there's some of that there. 
Uh, they'll be here again too. But we're going to sit down on the grass and let's have lunch. We'll buy lunch at the market. And so one man, weak in the faith, the other strong in the faith, go to the market together as brothers in Christ. And the one weak in the faith, of course, purchases only vegetables. Because his conscience is warned by Exodus chapter 20 that he must not eat non-kosher meat. And this clearly is. So he's not going to eat this meat. He's free under the old covenant to eat meat. But the way it's prepared is not going to be kosher, not going to be effective. He's not, he's, he purchases just vegetables and gets his little lunch. The one strong in the faith purchases meat and sits down gnawing away and slurping the juices as they have lunch together. And the brother who's eating the vegetables is grieved. That is, his conscience is bothering him. He feels horrible about this lunch and this situation. He doesn't want to see his Christian brother enjoying this meat because he believes he's violating God's will. And the one who's slurping down the hamburger is unloving. He's thinking simply about his gut, his taste buds, himself. He's not thinking about his brother. Paul's saying, I want you to see that picture and respond in love just by vegetables for this meal. But what is worse than simply grieving his brother is that you're not supporting the transforming power of the gospel in this brother's life. Notice verse 15, the second part, but what you eat, do, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Jesus died for this brother to get him to heaven. Jesus laid aside all freedoms to die for him. And you can't lay aside your hamburger? I know they didn't have hamburgers, but I'm contextualizing here. You can't do that for this brother? You're going to compromise his faith and perhaps even help destroy it by refusing to lay aside your right to eat meat. Jesus died to sanctify him. Don't defile him by insisting upon your freedoms. So a lunch of vegetables might be really disappointing to you today. But this is nothing next to the man whose conviction you stomp all over. Love him. Pass up on the hamburger. Have the garden salad. Have the hamburger tonight when you get home. Love this man he says, verse 16, So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. I think the meaning is what you regard as good is your freedom to eat meat because you understand the implications of the gospel. But don't let that be speaking of as, spoken of as evil. That is, your disregard of your brother's conviction about the law leads him to conclude that you don't love him and to question God's work in your life and His. It's good that you're thinking this way, but it's being spoken of as evil because you're not loving your brother with a different conscience. 
Verses 17 and 18 then, Paul pans back in a sense and looks at the faith in broader terms, focusing on what really matters. Here's what matters. Not that meat that you're going to eat or not eat for this meal. Here's what matters, verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. You claim to be mature in the faith, Paul says, don't get bogged down into debates and do not insist upon your freedoms. Focus on kingdom living. That's what matters here, to serve Christ as you relate to one another. And that means to give yourself to righteousness. I think in the context here, it's probably right relationships with one another. Give yourself to peace relationally, not arguing and fighting for position, but living in loving harmony, choosing peace in that lunch together, sitting on the grass. Not animosity, infighting, grief. And choose joy, a spirit of rejoicing in the Gospel that overwhelms the little nitpicky choices that we make in life. All in the Holy Spirit. The righteousness, the peace, the joy in relationship with the Spirit of God. God is pleased when we do this. We find in verse 18, and so is man. That means so is your brother. So these two men, rather than it being a place where one's conscience is damaged and there's grief there and there's questions about the faith, Maybe that brother's a fairly new believer and has grown up understanding the Old Covenant and just hasn't come to the implications of the Gospel yet in his life. Rather than that one being grieved and hurt and his faith being challenged, he's just enjoying this lunch as you both sit there and eat your vegetables. That's pursuing peace. That's pursuing joy in the Holy Spirit and a righteous relationship with one another and that finds acceptance with God and it's going to find acceptance with Him. Love Him that way. Set aside your freedom. Set aside your right to love your brother. This pleases the Lord and it pleases Him. Have that hamburger for supper. We could summarize then verses 19 and following this way. Determine never to cause others to stumble, but lovingly protect their conscience. It's going to take a little bit to get to the concept of conscience, but I think it's what holds together these verses, as we'll see that more at the end. But to begin with, verse 19, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Give yourself to what is going to encourage peace between one another and what is going to most lift up and build up one another's faith. That is a fundamental responsibility of believers to build one another up in the faith. Ephesians chapter 4. What will that look like? Well, verse 20, Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God, that is, the sanctifying work of God in the lives of believers, His redemptive, transformational work. Don't destroy that. Everything, verse 20, is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. So Paul's saying to the strong, yes, 
Your position is right. Yes, your brother is eating only vegetables for no good reason. But never, ever cause him to stumble. You know that burger is just fine to eat. You know God would approve it. But, verse 21, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Far more important than our freedom is the spiritual progress of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Wine is inserted here probably merely as a couplet with food, but it could be that wine available to the Romans was sacrificed to idols and thus troubling to those who were sensitive to Old Covenant stipulations. But the reason was not, let us stress, it was not because the weak were seeking to make no provision for the flesh by abstaining from alcohol. It was not that the weak were seeking uh, to avoid intoxication. It was not that they were seeking to avoid identification with the influence of alcohol upon the society or anything like this. This is one of those places where in reductionistic readings, all that gets shoved to side and pushed into the middle of it. One or the other. How can you shove it aside and push it in the middle? But you know what I mean. It's just, it's just like over, looked over and brought back into everything as if this all is just to be ignored. Now, there are, there are distinctions here. What is going on is this person saying, I can't drink this wine because of what the Old Testament stipulations indicate. That's what's at issue. Verse 22 then, the faith that you have... So, how, how's the strong to respond? Verse 22, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. And blessed indeed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Keep it between you and God doesn't mean keep your faith quiet. It doesn't mean it's inappropriate to ever to have a debate or a disagreement about such issues. But the point is you do not need to trumpet your freedom. You don't need to tell everybody about it. It is good that you have a clear conscience on these matters. That's the second part of verse 22. It, it, blessed, you're happy if you have no reason to pass judgment. You are not violating your conscience. That's wonderful. Keep that to yourself. Don't use that freedom to harm a brother or sister in Christ. Don't flaunt your freedom. And then every teaching of Paul always is incorporating some issue, and here he pushes a bit for the maturity of the weak in faith yet again while exhorting the strong as he concludes the section, verse 23, with these words, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Those weak in the faith, don't forget this, you're condemned if you eat because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So the strong need to recognize this about those weak in faith. And those weak in faith need to take this to heart. You see Christians strong in the faith at the market having lunch with the friend. You see your friend is not just eating vegetables. It's not just merely a matter of ignorance and poor interpretation of Scripture either. It's a matter for him of sin. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. 
Now think about this. Now think about your lunch and your freedoms. Think about his lunch and his conscience. For him to violate his conscience, for him to eat, even though he's wrong, for him to eat is sin for him. Recognize that. Think about that. Protect his conscience. And Christian, it certainly warns us, never, ever violate your conscience. Your conscience may not be well informed. Your conscience may, through the Word of God and the counsel of others, even be developed in the years to come. But at this moment, where you are, never violate your conscience. Because to do so is to say, I believe God disapproves, but I'm going to do it anyway on principle. For you, that's sin. Don't do it. If your conscience tells you not to do something, tells you to do something, honor it always. As you await a better informed, educated conscience, which is the task for all of us, as you await that, know that I've got to make the decision right now. And I've got to listen to what my conscience is saying. So it's not saying that it's flawless, but it's saying that I don't ever want to act in a way that I think displeases God. Now, the qualification, which we've got to stake just very briefly, is people can use that as an excuse for breaking God's law. My conscience bothers me here, so I'm going to do this or not do this. And what they're really doing is just breaking God's revealed will. We cannot apply it that way. Like, my conscience overwhelms what the Word of God has said. Never. But it's on those matters where we really are not sure what God thinks. We're not sure what is the best way forward as we live our life as a Christian, what is right and what is wrong. And we're dealing here with that. Believers, in fact, I don't, I don't know a mature believer who doesn't, set certain things off limits just by way of wisdom. Mature believers will do that. It's not because they believe the Bible doesn't grant them that freedom. It's because they make the decision, I don't think that's wise. I think that that's a way that I can make provision for the flesh. So mature believers will always do that. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about that place where you sense to do this is sin. I may not be absolutely sure. I cannot speak for God and what he thinks, but I think it's wrong. If you're ever in that spot, always follow your conscience. And if someone that you love, a brother, sister in Christ in the church, a family member, is in that spot, respect that. Protect their conscience. Don't run roughshod over it. So we have these two men at lunch, and the one who's got his big juicy hamburger there is saying, come on, what's wrong with you? Buy it's just meat, it's wonderful, you'll really enjoy it. Don't worry about it. You need to loosen up a bit. Lose the vegetables, get the hamburger. 
don't do that. Now, you can apply into a lot of different settings. I'm just using that by way of illustration. Don't take up that position to press someone against their conscience. So the right thinking, well, let me say this, if that man would do that in that setting, what would it be? It would be unloving, it would be foolish, and Paul warns us it could even be destructive to his faith. Just buy the vegetable lunch, sit down with him, and encourage him in his walk with Christ. Build up his conscience by your grace, by your kindness to him, by your reception of him. Don't stomp all over his conscience. That would be unloving and foolish and destructive. But the right thinking then, back to the thesis, is this. My conscience, as a mature believer, may permit me to eat non-kosher meat sold at market, but love for my weaker brother requires that I suspend my freedom for now in order to protect him from stumbling. Now, applying this passage to our own day is challenging. I'm not certain that there's any direct parallel. But what is clear is that the love Christ demonstrated for us will translate into the capacity to lay down our freedoms at times for the sake of unity and for the sake of sanctification. Now again, it's not laid down permanently, but it is to suspend at times out of love. So we're not saying that whoever has the weaker conscience dictates terms for time and eternity to those with a stronger conscience. But just at those places where you detect, I could cause this brother or sister to stumble, I'll back away. I'll defer to them. I'll love them. At any rate, we learn here Again, that the unity of the local church is a high priority to the head of the church who died to redeem us and who died to reconcile us. Never should such debates divide us. We should receive one another. We should not judge one another. We should say, as this text has said from the beginning, that we will stand before the judgment seat of God. And there we will give an account. He is the master of your brother or your sister. So not talking about doctrinal infidelity, but talking about places where we legitimately differ on how best to live out the Christian life. Unity is a top priority to Jesus. Not divisiveness. We cannot compromise truth for the sake of unity, but we can have disagreements about what is best and embrace those with whom we disagree as brothers and sisters. Indeed, we must. So this is no call to back away from the truth, but to realize that Christ is the Savior, Christ is the Master, there is a final throne before which we will give account, and these realities are bigger than our disputes. Let me apply in one way. Um, And... Any application that we make can be fighting words, can cause trouble and difficulty, can't it? And I don't know if this is the best choice, but I wanted to uh, move away from food and drink. And remember the third issue that he spoke of? Those who observe holy days, those who observe Sabbath. 
whether it's a long Sabbath, an annual Sabbath, or it is the weekly Sabbath. Let's consider that for a moment. And I, I want to walk properly here and with agility uh, as I try to illustrate this. But I think without some illustration, we don't have anything to really sink our teeth into as such, uh, other than this situation that really doesn't well apply to us. So let's go to the Old Covenant and consider this text. You just read it as a Christian. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and he made it holy. We have dear brothers and sisters in the free Presbyterian church. Many of them are devoted Bible believers and faithful in their walk with Christ. And in their catechism, they interpret that passage for Christians to say this, the fourth commandment requireth the keeping holy to God such set times as He hath appointed in His Word, expressly one whole day in seven to be a holy Sabbath to Himself. The Sabbath is to be sanctified by a holy resting all the day, even from such worldly employments and recreations as are lawful on other days, and spending the whole time in the public and private exercises of God's worship, except so much as is to be taken up in the works of necessity and mercy. So your neighbor gets stuck pulling out of the driveway on the Christian Sabbath, the Lord's Day, Sunday as we know it, you can help push them out only because it's mercy and necessity. These are, and the like worldly employments, we are to forbear by virtue of this commandment. And whatever loss we may seem to sustain by such forbearance, be sure it is not comparable to the loss of God's favor and the wounding of our conscience and the loss of our souls forever, which will be the fruit of living in the breach of God's law. Very intriguing words here at the end. You see the reference to conscience and the loss of our souls forever. Do not destroy the faith of your brother. Now, I'm going to imagine with you, imagine with me, that I have a friend who is a somewhat recent convert and reads this passage in Exodus and embraces this catechism's interpretation. And I know this about him. Is he right? Or am I right? Is my understanding of Christ's death and the implications to the Old Covenant accurate? Or is his? He visits our church one Lord's Day and supplied by this council. We are heading home after the service and I need to pick some things up for the lunch that we're going to have. 
I need a dozen eggs, let's say. And that afternoon, there is a championship game on TV that I really want to watch. But he's with me for the week, visiting from out of state, and as I'm going home, to go into that market and to buy those eggs is going to really grieve him. He'll have the capacity to let me go buy that stuff, and he understands, but he also thinks that I'm not obeying God. These people weren't hard to find a generation ago. In fact, you might be in the minority if you think it's fine to go buy those eggs today if you go back a generation or two. This kind of teaching was very prevalent, and I'm not going to stand here and say necessarily that it's wrong. This man's going to stand before God as his judge. I don't need to judge him to be wrong. I don't know if he's weak, and I'm just disobedient. But in my conscience, we need some eggs. I think I can go in there and purchase those eggs. And I think I can make lunch, we can eat together, and we can watch that ball game in the afternoon before we come back to church on Sunday night. But with my friend there, What is Christ teaching me to do? Figure out something else to eat. Don't buy the eggs. Don't trouble his conscience there. And don't watch that game. Meet together through the afternoon, sit in the living room, have conversation, read God's word, pray, and go back to church that night. Don't watch that game. He leaves later that week, the next Sunday, You stop by the store, you pick up your eggs, and you watch that game on recording. But you don't put a stumbling block in front of your brother. You love him. You set your freedoms aside. You don't get in his face and say, what is wrong with you? What do they teach you in that church? Where do you go to church again? What are you reading? This is stupid. Don't you understand Jesus has fulfilled the law? We don't need to do this. Remember, there's a God in heaven who's listening in. You're going to stand before him. He might be right. You might be wrong. But what we do know is you love him and you respect his conscience. You don't trample all over it. How this applies in every aspect of life and in the difficulties that we have as we seek to apply God's word to our Christian lives is difficult to conclude. And I again encourage you not to be simplistic with it. That anyone who says I can't do something is weak in the faith and anyone who says I can do something is strong in the faith. Let's not be that simplistic. But on the other hand, recognize the challenges that are here. But what's the larger issue? Those of you coming to home groups, talk about it this afternoon. The larger issue is that we love one another by setting our freedoms aside at times, suspending them, inconveniencing myself, setting my desires and even rights aside out of love for my brothers and sisters in cooperation with the sanctifying work of the risen Christ who is seeking to change and develop and mature them. May we learn to cooperate with Christ by loving one another in these ways. Let's pray. Lord, we 
I pray in behalf of those who know not Christ as Savior, and these words may just be utterly confusing, but I pray that those who know not Christ would recognize here and consider that Jesus laid down His freedoms to die in the place of sinners. That He sacrificed His life for us. And I pray that some would come to trust in that message even today. For those of us who have come to trust it, we praise You and we exalt in the freedoms that Jesus laid down. And I pray that you would teach us to cooperate with the sanctifying work of the risen Christ in the lives of your people. At times meaning to confront, at times meaning to correct, at times meaning as here to set our liberties aside, our freedoms down, to suspend them out of love for one another. May we orient ourselves as a church and as families to one another that we build each other up in the faith. Hear this cry of this church's heart today before your throne and bring about this work in us. Teach us to love as Christ has loved us. In His name we pray. Amen.